Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. Today's guest is Dave Benya, Executive Director of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. We'll talk about his organization's work here and abroad that supports the professional development of future and current journalists. Plus, we'll talk about the top 10 stories of 2022. Thank you for following the Jesse Got CS show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegotcsshow.com. I want to welcome to the show a very good friend of mine that I've known for almost, God, how long has it been, David? Almost like 15 years, maybe? I think most of that, you know, I'd say... Um... Post post uh, post Stonewall, but not Stonewall. The event actually the Obama, yeah, the, the Stonewall Democrats. <laughs> we met uh, at uh, the week before the Democratic convention that uh, basically uh, launched Obama into the stratosphere when he became the Democratic nominee. Uh, Dave Benia and I have been activists in the LGBTQ Democratic movements, respectively in Austin, David, and me in um, Dallas. And we finally got our to cross our paths in Denver when we met the week before the convention. And we learned about our similar past. We're both from South Texas. And we've kept in touch with each other. We've actually managed to live in the same city finally in Washington, D.C., when he was up here for a while. And now he is the executive director of the National uh, Association of Hispanic Journalists, and he's our guest today. Welcome to the show, David. Gracias, Jesse. Um, Good to be here. I am so happy to have you here, and I'm so honored that someone from the Rio Grande Valley is heading this important, important organization, the NH. H.J. And I just before we get started, I want folks to learn a little bit about yourself. Um, so, yes, I'm a product of the 956, you know, grew up in the Rio Grande <laughs> Valley, uh, Roma Gladiators back then. And so I've been fortunate enough that through my education and work, I've, you know, been able to um, go to St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas and the Graduate School Political Management in New York, but always staying connected back with Texas and my roots. But I'd say, you know, uh, education is really what has been allowed me to live in cities like D.C., Los Angeles, New York, and now back in San Antonio. So definitely for me, the Valley uh, was where I grew up. It's what shaped me. And so just, you know, always um, happy to connect with someone from the Valley that's creating an impact like you. So how did you end up at the National Association of Hispanic Journalists? Um, So Pretty much, I mean, I've spent the better part of uh, 25 years of my career in the nonprofit association management uh, area. And so I've been executive director of the Hispanic Dental Association. So, you know, helping uh, increase the number of Latinos going into the dental profession, entrepreneurs, business, um, and now journalism. And so how I ended up in this role was a friend of mine from Washington, D.C., Marianne Orta, called me and she's like, you should apply for this job. And so I, you know, at first I said no, and then she called me again and, you know, shared about the opportunity. And it was also what was going on politically where our then president was attacking, you know, journalists in the media. Um, and I just, you know, felt that I could make a difference as I had another association. So I applied for the job and it was a four month interview process, but here I am, you know, happy to 
be in another leadership role with the Latino organization where I create pathways for Latinos. So the National Association is linked up with how many members? So we have a little over 4,000 members across, or we have the members, which we didn't realize uh, because of um, the, uh, the situa current situation with regard to how people are virtually working around the world. So we've always known that we, you know, we're growing and we have over 4,000 members. What we didn't realize is we have over 20 um, members in over 22 countries around the world. So that's amazing. That's been quite a surprise because now people, whether they're correspondents or, you know, because of COVID spread around the world, we've been fortunate that now we have a presence, uh, that big of a presence. And we also have in the U.S. Uh, 25 student chapters at colleges and universities, 25 professional chapters in major cities across the country. So we definitely have a great footprint. And this past year, we also expanded our programming into Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic and Mexico City. Excellent. So it's not only just American based, but now you're crossing the border and linking up with other organiz uh, other countries. We are linking with other uh, the countries and other organizations, not only to provide training and access, but also to highlight. I mean, it's uh, absolutely mind boggling how um, over 14 journalists have been murdered alone in Mexico this past year. Um, and so for us, that's our neighbor. Those are our journalists who are also covering um, international news and local news. And so we want to provide them the training and the access to the resources that we have in the U.S. as they uh, report the news and protect the right to of, uh, freedom, of the right, right, freedom of the press. Freedom of the press, Amazing. Great work that you're doing. I'm so happy that you all are thinking that broadly and to protect the, the freedom of the press. So here in the United States, a lot of news lately has been that there's been so much downsizing of media companies. People are, you know, not only in the private sector, but also media companies have been downsizing, letting go of folks. How has that affected journalists of color? Um, well, you know, part of just sort of piggybacking on the last set, the last question that we talked about, uh, or my response, you know, part of our focus is the recognition and the uh, ensuring that there's professional advancement for journalists across the country. Um, and so with that said, uh, you know, an area that is really impacted uh, by all these mergers and acquisitions has been local communities around the country where the loss of uh, you know, radio stations, uh, TV stations, but newspapers where a lot of our communities get their news locally, um, they're losing their newspapers at the local level. And just, you know, just one example, recently um, the Orlando Latino community was impacted by the loss of one of the Spanish newspapers there in Orlando, which is a major community, not, you. You know, it's not a rural area. But that's sort of at the local level, the impact that these mergers and acquisitions um, have where it has impacted. At the, no at the national level, um, these recent acquisitions and down, um, economic downsizing has really impacted communities of colors. And Latinos, we're seeing some of the major gains that we had made over the last few years really disappearing. But I do want to uh, sort of emphasize that the biggest impact and why we feel that um, we're being impacted is that we haven't really had a lot of gains with Latinos at the executive level, you know, C-suites, the people that are actually making the decisions when these mergers and, and downsides Correct. happen. Correct. So you know, we're, we're losing a lot of Latinos because there are not Latino voices at that table when those decisions are being made. And so we definitely need more Latinos 
in news in the front, but we also need more Latinos in the C-suite so that our voice is there at the table when these decisions are being made. So how can folks become members of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists? So, you know, part of that is like I mentioned earlier about how we have the 25, you know, student chapters around the country and the 25 professional chapters at major cities. So those, you know, one opportunity at the local level for individuals to get involved. At the national level, they can visit our website at www.nahj.org um, and take a look at what the work that we're doing and the sort of the opportunities there for journalists, for um, supporters that are supporting um, the journalists across the country and individuals who work within the media communications and journalism field to be members. So, you know, visit our website or contact any of our local leaders or university leaders um, to join and support NHJ. You heard it here, folks. The National Association for Hispanic Journalists is ready for your membership, and they're enrolling all types of media professionals, correct, Dave? Yeah, they can be um, in radio, in uh, broadcast, uh, they can be in print, uh, multimedia, podcasters, you know, everybody um, is able to join and support and be part of our organization and support Latino journalists. And you all link up with other communities of color. I saw that you all had a recent uh, convention where all three, the Asian and African-American, correct? Correct. We do partner with our communities of color that are in journalism, such as the National Black Journalists Association, uh, the National Gay Lesbian Journalists Association, um, AAJA, and other journalism organizations. We partner together on different projects, different events, and support each other whenever there is a decision of the major media companies um, at the national level that we need to, you know, uh, say something and state, you know, our support or just to say something whenever our community and our journalists are impacted. Thank you, Dave, for all you do to ensure the freedom of the press and ensuring equal access to these very important positions in our democracy. I'm thankful for our friendship and what better way to close out 2022, but with Dave Benya, an amazing media professional who loves to talk about politics, culture, and art from a Latino LGBTQ point of view. Now, 2022 has been a year full of important stories, and I've compiled the top 10 stories as of the second week of December when this show was recorded. So if something happens in the next two weeks, my apologies for not including it. Here are the top 10 stories of 2022, starting off with number 10, the release of Brittany Griner from a Russian prison. It is amazing that in the middle of a Russian war, where um, Russian and American relations are at their lowest point, and so much is going on in the international scene, that somehow the U.S. and Joe Biden managed to get Brittany Griner home. It should be a moment that we should all be cheering, but there are many people in the United States that are upset that Brittany came home and another hostage, Paul Whelan, still remains in custody. Now, for some background, the negotiations that have been going on for several months included Paul, but Russia decided on Brittany alone. What's your take, Dave? I think it um, great news for America. You know, happy that she's, you know, home and also, you know, Baylor Bear Nation. She used to play for Baylor. So definitely, you know, um, we're happy that she's out. It's just been um, a, a situation where there's, you know, 
there's not a sort of a, a win across the country because there are other Americans that are still jailed. But I think on top level, it's all the administration could do, um, bring her home with what the offer that was on the table. So, you know, as they've That's committed- correct. That's correct, Dave, because they've been trying their darnest with this uh, prisoner swap. They had in mind to bring both of them home. But at the last minute, Russia just pulled the other uh, prisoner and just gave us Brittany. And rather than just leave the, the, the talks, we decided to get what we can and let's move on and still work on trying to get Paul Whelan. So, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it, it's what ha- it, it is what it is. It's and- the reality of what are circumstances. Exactly. And then a lot of people are, are trying to label her as like, oh, we went for the Hollywood pick rather than someone who served in the Marines. But Brittany Griner, for those who not who don't know who Brittany Griner is or are familiar with her work, she is basically a national star. Um, it's just not the WNBA where she was basically the number one player of the WNBA. She led the U.S. national team to victory in the Rio Olympics in 2016. And then she got a second gold in Tokyo in, when we had him in 2021. Um, so she is a big star and an American icon in the sports world. She's won several awards. Uh, the Houston native is like at the top of her game, but her, I just looked at her contract for her three years to work in with, uh, to work with her, uh, to play for her Phoenix team, $664,000. But in one season in Russia, she makes a million dollars. So there's a reason why all these American women go play in all these state, all these uh, foreign nations, because the money is there. Meanwhile, her counter- counterpart, James LeBron, makes $44 million in just one year. It is just crazy. It is just crazy. It is just crazy. But um, I'm glad that she came home. I'm really sad that there's critics out there who are just upset that we didn't get Mr. Whelan home. But some of the loudest critics are some of the biggest hypocrites. Um, Donald Trump tried to make this, politicize this. He put out a message criticizing her return. And the brother of Paul Whelan, David Whelan, called him out because he said Donald Trump did nothing for his brother while he was in jail. I mean, in prison in Russia. Never once did anything. Never once mentioned him, and it was almost he guess he described his mentioning his brother's name as really offensive after the track record that he gave. You know the family of not doing anything during his four years. So I just want to say we hope we get Whelan back, and I hope that um, the Biden administration, who already got uh, another Marine home. If y'all remember, Trevor Reed came home in April. Um, I hope that he's able to get Mr. Whelan back in the near future. Yep. They're all Americans and they deserve to be back. Yeah.
Our next story is the Mpox virus, formerly known as monkeypox. The actual name just recently changed um, by the, the World Health Organization decided to call it Mpox. But in 2022, we had an outbreak that really scared a lot of people. I mean, we were just recovering from COVID-19. We're not recovering. We're still in the midst of it, but we're kind of getting a holding a hold of it. People were getting not only vaccinated, but they were getting boosted by that time. And all of a sudden, this monkeypox uh, outbreak started in May. Uh, David, did you ever get uh, uh, vaccinated? What's interesting in, uh, is, you know, for me, this is still an issue of education, vaccination, and access. The access part is what's important because when I was, you know, going to get my um, COVID vaccine and then the booster shot, and I asked. Uh, the doctor, I said, do y'all offer the monkeypox vaccine? And she goes, what's that? Wow. So, so, so for me, the access part uh, for vaccination is still important because outside the major metro areas that have large gay populations, there's still a level of education um, to fight misinformation, but also educating the medical community on the uh, monkeypox and the implications and the outbreaks that have happened because there's still doctors out there and pharmacists who are not aware. And it just kind of was mind boggling to me that she was not aware. Um, and obviously if she's not aware, that means they don't have access to the vaccine. So I asked elsewhere. So it was to me, um, I think it's important with any outbreak that there be a level of education, not only for medical professionals, but individuals. And then for access to vaccination, because if there is no access and there is no education, then that's why some of these outbreaks happen. The outbreak happened in mid, like early mid-May. And then the federal government, the U.S. government was trying to get his act together in June. But while we were waiting in June, we were all like freaking out after the first couple of prides in um, the first two weeks of June because the numbers started going crazy. Here in DC, all of us kind of felt like, wait, where is, you know, where are these vaccines that are supposedly already available? Why aren't they being distributed? A lot of us older folks started remembering the old days when HIV was being ignored by the federal government. So we started like making a lot of noise, <laughs> as you can imagine, because it's all like, it was giving us deja vu. It's like, oh my God, this is happening all over again where they're not making this a priority because the monkeypox, the mpox virus was like mainly in the LGBT community. And, but what I really love is that the community sort of like made it a priority. Let's get vaccinated. Once this thing is available, we need to get vaccinated. I remember going to go stand in line at the clinic uh, we all registered, we got called in, and when I arrived, there was a long line, long line of individuals of all ages, of all ages and races, and we're just there in line with our smartphones, with our appointments ready to go, and I was just so proud of the community because they really stepped up. A lot of us would be, you know, we didn't feel ashamed to be in that line. We're like, no, we're going to take our sexual health and our overall health um res be responsible for it and be there get that vaccination so we could be um able to live our lives free from this mpox okay. so um at the end of the day there was twenty nine thousand cases uh reported in the u.s this past year of mpox but only twenty 
deaths. Global cases went up to 82,000 cases, 82,000 cases. So it was a little scare over the summer, but it subsided. Um, but I do hope that if you still are, have access to the MPOX um, vaccination, that you go get it. Uh, our next story is Twitter, the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. Dave, what do you feel about that? Three words. What a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this guy who's already had a large megaphone because of his billionaire status spent 44 million. Was it million or billion? I forget. But a lot of money in October. to Many zeros. <laughs> many zeros to purchase uh, Twitter. Uh, a, va- a vanity social media for him. Yeah. It it um, in October he purchased this and to get even a bigger megaphone that he already has, and um, it's just been really sad because since his acquisition, digital hate has reached an all time high in main, in the mainstream platform. Uh, slurs against black people have tripled, and uh, against women, those slurs have gone up thirty three percent. Against Jewish people, 61%. Gays, 58%. So it's sort of like he came onto the scene and it's almost like it kind of made a very important tool um, just go downhill. Um, I think for us, uh, what's important is that we continue to communicate, engage with the public and having our journalists report. And Twitter is a great resource for us to communicate access, but we continue to monitor um, the situation because it is, um, there's quite a bit of concern of how Twitter is being um, run and how, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, it, it is important for us as an association to continue to monitor before we make any decisions. Next, we have the Queen, uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth. She died in October, living 96 years and reigning England for 70 years. Um, I thought it was just a lot of coverage. I mean, um, I was not a big fan of the royal family, but I, I know the historical significance of it. How did, how did you see that, Dave? I think it's... Um someone best described it as the end of an imperial generation. So it was, it was in a generation that grew up thinking and and for all intents and purposes, functioning as an uh, um, sort of an imperial reign of the queen. And so that's an end of a generation. And, you know, everybody's hopeful that, you know, uh, fingers crossed that, you know, King Charles, um, there will be some changes. But as I recently watched, um, some of the documentary on Harry and Meghan, it, I'm not much hopeful that things are going to change because, you know, Charles was grew up in a generation that the Queen lived under. And so it's hard to kind of make that kind of change, um, you know, from a generation, but also from a family that has lived under the benefits of, you know, being an imperial generation. And so I think that Yes, the coverage was excessive. I mean, it was like every channel, every, you know, it was like, you know, she died, she's going to be buried, she's going to be seen, she's going to be remembered. It's like, um, you know, as Americans, we're not under the queen, why are we having as much coverage? But, you know, 
I think the the reports on balance, there was some great conversations about race, uh, about wealth and the impact. Uh, so we're hopefully colonization, yeah, colonization, and you know the. Um, so hopefully, you know, it's a transition not only of a generation but also of sort of the mindset of the British Crown. Yeah, I think what a lot of Americans are fascinated by is the fact that remember when she came of age uh, as queen, she was only 25 years old and it was 1952. Yep. So a lot of American women did not even have the type of power that they have now. So to see a woman take over a whole nation at a time when women didn't even have the right to have credit cards back in 52, you know, and the queen was going to inherit half a billion in assets and crowns and jewels and land. So it was almost, it came sort of like, the one positive thing I got to say is that it kind of gave people the right to see a woman in power. And she held on to that power and she tried to be as graceful as possible, following all the etiquette all her life, making sure that everything was done as it was supposed to be done by their rules. So I give her credit on that, of trying to have a somewhat structured household for like seven decades. Her children messed that up. But um, I got to say that uh, at least she gave us sort of like the the image of what it's like to have a woman leader. The next one was another historic woman that made the news. The historic appointment of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Now, this was such a joy to watch because, one, she is a native of Washington, D.C. She was 50 years, 52 years old, and she was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Joe Biden on February 25th. And she was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on April 7th and sworn in to office on June 30th. And boy, was that a historic moment. But it's also sad that there was such a confirmation nastiness. Um, they try to not be nasty, but there were still some moments where you're just thinking, okay, that was not called for, you know? But of course people are going to be uh, from the Republican side are going to be just as uh, partisan as can be. And they didn't appreciate the fact that this was a historic appointment. Yeah. I, you know, one word, finally, you know, finally. It's a, yeah. a much needed voice and perspective on the Supreme court. Um, I think if you haven't had a chance recently to listen to some of the audio that the Supreme court uh, provides um, it really brings full circle why she was needed at the court. Uh, you know, the, the the life lived experience that she brings to the court, but also just being a voice for the for women, for African-American women, for communities of color. And her questions that she brings to the table uh, were much needed. And I think it balances out the tilt that the court was going towards. So um, yes, a very proud moment for communities of color, much needed voice, but I encourage individuals that haven't had a chance to hear some of the uh, oral arguments of recent um, cases that have come before the Supreme Court, um, you can see uh, why you know she was needed, and you can see how her lived experience um, 
informs her judicial temperament. So, you know, finally, that's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. President Biden, uh, it's one of it's definitely one of his high points, uh, appointed more judges to the federal court at this stage in his tenure than any other president since John F. Kennedy and his appointments appointees have included record number of women and racial and ethnic minorities. So good, good for Joe, but bad for Joe is our next story. <laughs> that uh, number five inflation and high gas prices. Oh my God. We all felt them. That's all we ever talked about during the summer. Those damn gas prices. I don't drive a car. I used to drive a truck. And during the last gas crisis that we had, I remember just being like, oh, my God, this is eating up my budget. So I could only imagine what folks were going through this summer. And I was just so happy that I was dependent on rail <laughs> getting around in Metro. But, man, did that hurt. And you're in Texas. Yeah. How did you pay in gas? Um, you know, one of the things about being in Texas is that we drive everywhere. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, you know, as they say, everything in Texas is big and everything that's big in Texas needs a lot of gas. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and but also, you know, I think the a lot of the conversation centered around, you know, we were on a roller coaster of manipulation, whether it was manipulation on, you know, the gas prices and who's to blame, whether, you know, say it was whether it's state regulation. If you ask some people, it's you know, the gas companies, it's the oil companies, it's federal regulation, it's the Biden administration. But I think overall, as a nation, it's just something we haven't addressed. We get concerned whenever the gas prices go up. And when the gas prices go down, we move on to the next topic. And so, you know, if energy policy in the US needs to change and needs to address, and it's not a California issue, it's not a Texas issue, I think it's across the country because as people, you know, want to drive and want to go visit family across the country or across the state and gas prices just didn't allow that at a time. And I think a big part of the frustration was that people had post COVID, they wanted to travel, they wanted to visit friends. And so with the gas sort of kept them, it was just, you know, one more thing, according to them. That, obstacle. Yeah. yeah, one more obstacle. The administration's trying to keep us at home, masked and vaccinated, you know. So that, you know, just added up into the, you know, the criticism. But I this week, what was it? It's the lowest it's been this week. But yeah, it impacted a lot of families and it hurt a lot of small business owners, specifically Latino business owners who rely on a lot of industries that have to, you know, they have to gas up. And so that was also a, quite an impact on the communities of color and Latino communities. But yeah, in Texas, gas was the topic of conversation, um, why people were frustrated. Californians ended up paying on June 16th, the week of June 16th, $6.43 per gallon. I saw in D.C. as high as $4.43, but man, $6.00. Plus, I was just, I was just, when I saw that statistic, it just jumped at my face. And um, it really, really hurt the president, even though rec the oil companies make record profits. I'm just sort of like, how does that not like lead off every story that these big old oil conglomerates are raking in profits? I'm just not, sort of like, sorry for interrupting. There was like, I was in California, one of the statistics that I heard, which was kind of like that actually makes sense is that over the years um mom and pop gasoline stations have disappeared 
So whenever, you know, one can only wonder if, you know, price gouging or price fixing, you know, at the time when the gas prices go up, if, you know, there's no competition, there's only a few people who control what the gas gas prices are. So, yeah, you know, on balance, it may be some state regulation and maybe some federal regulation, but the disparity between what people pay in California and what people pay in other states, you know, one has to look on balance on who controls the refineries and who controls mom and pop shops because that's how prices are set. Yeah. The one that definitely, uh, along with American families, uh, President Biden took a hit. His approvals have been as low as 31 to 46 most recently. He's recovering. His highest was 57 when he first started in 2021, January, but it never went above 46 this year. And this, he took it in the chin. Uh, the next story is going to be a really sad one, especially because you and I are from this region, South Texas, the Robb Elementary shooting. Um, very, very, very horrible situation that to this, to this day, I'm still angry. I'm still angry of how everything turned out. So let's revisit. An 18-year-old went into a shoot, uh, 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 a school uh, elementary school shot 19 students and two teachers in the small town of Uvalde on May 24th. Um, this kid had no experience with firearms prior to his rampage. Um, he targeted an elementary school, according to the Texas Tribune, uh, that had an active shooter policy already. They had already been trained and they deemed adequate in running that um that uh, practice of getting into safety and, and notifying the authorities. But it also had a long history of propping doors open. And no one that was called that day was able to stop the gunman from carrying out the deadliest school shooting in Texas history. They blame it on systemic failures and poor decision make, making by nearly everyone involved who was in positions of power and um, we're talking about 376 law enforcement officers that were on site, different agencies, 376. And they basically waited out until he shot everyone in that room that he was barricaded in. Um, yeah, it's a sad situation. I mean, I grew up in a similar um, sort of rural Texas community and it's it's interesting that the term systemic failures is thrown around when um, there's been systemic failures at the state level and yes. and and those are not addressed. And I, I think what what I want to reiterate to everybody is um, this can still happen in your community because it's it's something that in Texas it hasn't been addressed at the state level there's been policies that you know kind of just oh we're going to check to see if there's a safety you know if all the schools safe what well, we all know that in these rural communities we grew up with you know leaving the doors open it's a small community um you know it's it's part of the daily livelihood but you know just saying that there's a problem and not uh providing the adequate funding not providing funding for other resources that may be needed, addressing issues of safety, bullying, uh, mental health. 
everything should be on the table um, and it's not. And so when people mention systemic failures, um, it's not just at the local level and what happened that day, the systemic failures are at the state level. Yeah, the only thing that Governor Abbott, Abbott has banned is TikTok most recently, but he hasn't gone after AR-15s. He hasn't figured out ways to provide more safety um, to communities that are going through this gun violence situation. Um, it was, it was, it was, it just got me so angry because a lot of information got released after the election where we see that the police chief, the person that was supposed to be responsible that day was just walking in and out of the building waiting for other agencies to show up when he was the one that was in charge. He wasn't the one that, and we arm, we provide so much money to arm law enforcement, especially in Texas. Yeah. Where it's, a and very it's, it's, it's in South Texas, and there's already a militarization of the border area. And yet, systemically, I mean, where was law enforcement? Yeah. It's almost, we, 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 we trust the law enforcement, we support the law enforcement, we give them all the money that we can. But brown kill, uh, brown children were still murdered that day. Brown yeah. children. And everybody was mentioning how that Denver, most recent, not the Denver, I'm sorry, the Colorado Springs shooting, where people ran to the shooter and took him down at that gay bar. I just wish people that were, <laughs> were, were that brave to do that same thing to prevent so much death. But it's almost like when it's brown little kids there's just, it's almost like we're expendable. We're expendable. It's just, it's just really sad. I, I just, I'm so disappointed. Uh, I just get angry when I start thinking about it. Um, I don't. And we'll, and we'll see during the next legislative session if there's, you know, all the promises made during the election season, you know, what comes about. Because if it not, if it, if there's no changes, um, then. You know, it's all a farce and there's a whole lot of press conferences. Um, and even now, the city of Uvalde, I believe, is still fighting to get access to information in their own city. And it's sad that um, some of that information could really lead to substantive change. And yet they don't have access to it. And when people directly ask the police chief, he's already lawyered up and he doesn't want to speak to anybody. So... I will, I just hope the the community continues to fight to get the to the root of everything that they need to get all the information that they need, especially for the families. Yeah. The next um story was one that we just did not see coming. It was supposed to be the red wave. Biden was in a very weak position. Um, we just talked about how inflation and and foreign affairs were kind of like bringing his administration into crisis mode. But somehow the Democrats held off a red wave during the midterms of 2022 and surprised so many people. Dave, how did you see that day coming? <laughs> um, I, I want to say, you know, coalitions, right message, and the Latino voters, uh, because there were areas that, you know, especially, you know, you both, you and I are both from South Texas and there's like, oh, there's a Republican wave in South Texas. There's a Republican wave in South Texas. And, you know, 
I was a candidate down in South Texas in that specific county that, you know, supposedly the red wave was. And it's just laughable to me that, um, you know, it, it, yes, there's a lack of um, party commitment to those areas of Texas. It's sort of like, oh, it's always Democrat. It's always going to vote. Um, but I think that part of what kept this, you know, red wave away, if it ever was a red wave, um, was just the right messaging. You know, there were they were candidate. There were candidates out there who articulating everything that was happening, the legislative wins, the changes that the administration has done. And so it was about right message. It was always, you know, also about coalitions, you know, right and left working together. Yeah, there's a few examples where, you know, um, the right and left didn't work together and the result is what we saw. But I think as a whole, the fact that um, the, the way it became a trickle has to do a lot with um, the message. And if people are out there articulating the importance of, um, you know, Roe versus Wade as a healthcare issue and kitchen table issues on how the economy is doing and how the challenges that the administration has had to face and overcome, um, people, you know, took a look at the candidates and they felt that there was a message there that they resonated with them and they voted in that way. Uh, because in many ways, there is a party that doesn't have a message, um, doesn't have a platform, you know, and if it's just on fear, I think people are starting to see that, you know, um, that records run its course. Yes, Biden, uh, a lot of people were like, where's his message? Where's his message? He was giving the message that went through, reject extreme extremism and save our democracy. You know, uh, voters most re mostly rejected extremist Republican candidates that were backed by Donald Trump in almost every prominent election um, that had a election denying sec secretary of state candidate. Those are the very important positions. The secretary of states run the elections in all these states and having people that were ready to throw out election 2020, you know, if they had that power. Um, we don't need a person like that. And I think people, that's what scared people because people like democracy is the only form of government we've ever known <laughs> and we enjoy and we like the fact that we have a representative uh, form of government and they want to keep it. And they saw what was going to happen if the other side had certain people in power and they rejected them all. Another thing that was rejected across the nation. There was abortion uh, referendums on the ballot in six states, and all the abortion rights sides won decisively. Uh, another thing that was wonderful about this election is that 430 LGBTQ candidates won their elections at all levels of government. And that's and then a record number of Latinos are headed to Congress, 45. Yep. Uh, even though uh, it's we're still under count, uh, Hispanics make up 19% of the U.S. population, but we only make up 9% of the House members and 6% of the senators. But we're, we're, winning the, we're winning beyond the Latino communities. And that's what's important is that Latinos can represent um, multi-ethnical communities as long as the, the, the message is there and the right candidate wants to bring about change. And so that's also important is that, yes, we're winning in Texas and Florida and New York and other areas, but we're winning in states where, you know, in Oregon, 
in Oregon, of all places, that lady that just won her Senate seat, uh, daughter of a of a mechanic. I was just sort of like, wow. Yep. We, come, we come a long way of Oregon finally <laughs> a Latina representing. So so happy for her. And um a lot of firsts, a lot of firsts throughout the na uh, throughout the nation on LGBT candidates, Native Americans, African Americans, a lot of a more diverse uh elected and, and younger too. And younger. Oh my God! So many young candidates. Um, a lot of these, uh, the Democratic Party not only just did some magic at the federal level, at the state level, they managed to flip house uh, government, state houses. Um, they got trifectas for the first time in Massachusetts, Maryland, Minnesota, Michigan. I mean, these are states that were turning. Um, well, Michigan, uh, for one, was trending red, but now it's gone solidly democratic arizona of all places they got the secretary of state the governor and the senate the senator so great work i work with a lot of young latinos here in dc and they went to go knock doors on in arizona and i'm just so proud of them and what i loved about when i was having this we had a friendsgiving had all these latinas that I cooked a nice turkey for. We had a Friendsgiving night. I was able to cook a turkey for them. And all these Latinas were talking about their their stories about knocking and trying to get votes out from Mark Kelly. And what I loved about it is that they, I was like, you you guys saved democracy. You saved us from a, a Carrie Lake, you know, uh, trying to take over and, and spread some, some extremist stuff. So I applauded all those young ladies. And what I loved about it is they were all in their 20s, Latinas. And I'm thinking 20 years ago, they would have told you like, mm, maybe politics is not for you. Or maybe, you know, uh, they would have been regulated to a, a lesser role in politics. But here they are at the beginning of their careers. They just came off of campaign win. And now they're in all these important careers here in D.C. And I'm just so proud of them. Um, and they just look like baby, they're like my baby cousins. And I'm like, oh my God, y'all are so young and the future's ahead of you and you just saved democracy. Uh, I, I just I just think the world of them. And I, I love that Latinos are getting involved. Wasn't it just like, what was it, 20 years ago that we were doing bulk caravans into when Arizona was banning Latino books and, you know, all that stuff. So, I mean, yeah. the fact that um, the state has tra transitioned uh, or is transitioning is a generational issue. And I think it's a time for where Latinos are being not only active and showcasing, but also having a true impact in politically and how that state is changing. Yeah. It's not, it's no longer just a retiree state. No. Uh, one of the reasons why we had this amazing um, turn of events of an election that I just couldn't go to sleep that whole week because elections are no longer decided on Tuesday night. They go on and on. And it was like a Netflix binge watch marathon that I was going through. I was just glued to CNN Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, because it looked like the house was going to remain in Democratic hands and I, I couldn't stop watching. Oh my God. But um, a lot of the reasons why we had an election like this was because of the Roe v. Wade, our second story, Roe v. Wade being overturned. On Friday, June 24th, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark piece of legislation that made access to an abortion 
a federal right in the United States. This decision um, dismantled 50 years of legal protection and paved the way for individual states to curtail or outright ban abortion rights. And some of these states, nine of them, had already had trigger laws waiting for this day, and another dozen are in the process of enacting legislation. Dave, how did you feel when this went down? Um, it was uh, not a surprise, um, given that, you know, I'd say for 20 years, um, the goal of overturning Roe versus Wade, both politically and judicially, has been something that um, the Republican Party have been trying to do and have been setting the foundation for it. So I was not surprised. Disappointed, yes, because I continue to believe that it is a women's health care issue, that it is the right and um, the a woman should have that conversation with her doctor and not a politician. And, in, you know, in Texas, um, it, it's unfortunate, but it continues to be a political where politicians are making decisions on what women should do and should not do in their bodies. Uh, but I, you know, I've been sort of involved in politics on and off for over 20 years. And, you know, you could see how it was both on the type of candidates they elected and the type of judges they appointed. And then, you know, uh, then they began to have the Supreme Court when they felt that there was enough judicial pathways to change it, that, you know, once the last two Supreme Court justices were, um, you know, one was a seat was stolen and the other one was ramrod, fast-tracked, um, that this was the ultimate goal. And I think that there are a lot of other um issues that are still in peril. Um, and But yeah, I was not surprised um, because of what I knew that was sort of how they were setting the pathway. I was hopeful that there was still, you know, higher um, conversations would prevail. But I think this is what also has led to a lot of women running for office has led uh, for, you know, personal and family conversations. And even in the Latino community where a lot of people say, oh, you know, they're anti-abortion because it's a very Catholic community. I think in some of the states that um, the issue um, was on the ballot showed that the Latino community is not monolith and that the Latino community is not as uh, solidly conservative on some issues. Um, and it, when it comes to protecting the rights of you know, our mothers, our sisters, our aunts, um, that's really what is important. And people, uh, the more... Um, the information and education will realize that this is a women's health care issue. Yeah, let's talk about some statistics. Uh, the only alternative to abortion is childbirth, which has a 14 times higher risk of death than abortion. Almost 75% of U.S. abortion patients live at or below 250% of the federal poverty level. And more than 50% of abortion patients uh, are women of color, and 60% of all patients have already had had children. So um, a women's issue that affects them immediately with their own health while they're giving birth and 18 years plus once the child is born and they have to deal with um, raising that child, feeding that child, and caring for that child. So... Uh, when the decision was leaked in May, it is just, it, it just sort of, it, my stomach just kind of like 
wow, they're going after something that's been a law for like five decades. And I got that same gut feeling when Hillary lost in 2016. When she lost, I knew that we were going to lose the Supreme Court because it was just sort of like, it, it was the writing on the wall. And yeah. it's just like, it was just one of those feelings when you're just like, oh no, the world is going to be changing, you know, and not for good. And I'm just like, I was just really sad when it leaked and it actually was something that was credible. And within a month, the world changed. Another thing that happened that changed the world uh, was when Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, that's the top story that came out um, early this year. They had been mobilizing throughout 2021. Tanks were rolling at the border. They were saying it was military exercises, but eventually Russia crossed over and more than 100,000 people on each side of Russia and Ukraine have died um, in this fight, uh, according to the United States, according to estimates by the United States. 14 million Ukrainians have left their home and crossed borders into other cities and countries. The global economy continues to be weakened by the war through significant disruptions in trade of food and fuel, uh, and all of which are contributing to high inflation and, and a tightening in global financial conditions. Um, the U.S. is linked with this war because it's basically a West versus East situation. Uh, uh, an even colder war uh, in the sense that we, we have to feed this monster of a war um, to hold back a Russian aggression. Um, how has this affected um, the coverage from Hispanic journalists, Dave? Um, first, I'll state that, you know, I can't remember where I read it. says a threat abroad is a threat at home. So, you know, we cannot just view it as it's happening on, you know, the other side of the world and it's something that doesn't impact us. Um, we've had over the last year, a couple of Latino journalists who've been over there covering the news and, you know, and, and how, what they report and how they come back and report is always sort of, um, we need to be a resource for those journalists, just like we're a resource for journalists here in the U.S because um, they did cover war and what they see. So the impact of uh, mental health and wellness is always something that, you know, we continue to connect our, our journalists and how they cover. And, 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 that, and that happens also with, you know, journalists who cover every continued mass murder and shooting that we have in the U.S. But I think, you know, part of the, so, you know, Russia-Ukraine situation is that, um whether it was Iraq or Syria, they've all been sort of practice runs for Russia of what they can get away with and you know how the West reacts to it or does not react to it. So they got away with, you know, killing people in Iraq in the 80s, then Syria and you know, bombing a whole city in Syria. And it's just sort of from Americans, it was sort of like, oh, it happens over there. It's not really impacting. And I think Ukraine was one of the first times, and some of it was, you know what the situation was, you know, COVID and post COVID and then Ukraine happened that all of a sudden you're, you know, we're not quite 
you know, getting some of the things that we need and it's impacting, you know, oil prices and it's impacting supply chain. And then it sort of becomes, it was like, oh, wait a minute, you know, we are Ukraine. It's like, well, it's always been, Russia has always been a threat, but that is actually the physical threats. I think we have to be concerned about the threats that we don't see, like the disinformation, like the engagement in politics, like the, you know, virtual attacks on the U.S. Um, and our allies. And so that's why it's important that um, not just because it affects our own home, our physical home, but our homeland. And I think that's more important is that Russia has shown its, its true colors. Um, I don't think, you know, that anytime soon we're going to get, you know, Russians on the West Coast of California or Russians in the East Coast. But I think that they continue to push the envelope. And Ukraine is one of those test areas where they can say, well, let's say if we cut off grain, what's going to happen? Will they stand up or they won't say anything? Well, what if we, you know, in, uh, jail a couple of Americans? Will they react or not? What if we just meddle in a couple of elections, see if they'll, you know, do anything about it, change any laws? Or, you know, or do we have politicians in the U.S. who will support our efforts and kind of, you know, retweet like Ted Cruz misinformation that comes from Russia. And so that's what's important is that it's not, you know, yes, we stand with Ukraine and the people of Ukraine continue to need support. Even in a Republican Congress, we continue, we need to continue to fund the efforts for Ukraine to remain its own independent country. But we have to be aware that um, these are sort of like, you know, front door attacks when they're doing a lot more. And there's a, a saying in Mexico, el que tira la piedra y esconde la mano, that, you know, means basically that, you know, they throw the rock and hide the hand to act like they were not the ones that actually threw the rock. So I think that's what's important about this top issue um, this year that Russia invades Ukraine. It's that it's a continuation of Russian aggression, but it's also uh, a warning sign for the U.S. and how we act because they're testing us. They're taking a look at what areas do we, you know, uh, can can be undermined, whether it's electric grids, whether it's campaigns, whether it's division among uh, parties. Um, Russia is testing the waters um, and they'll continue to do that as long as we don't take a proactive approach in continuing to support Ukraine and continuing our posture of talking to Russia but at the same time, um, being hard on them because their aggression is not acceptable. And let's see if the new Congress is up to the challenge. Uh, they'll be taking office in early January. The U.S. has already given $68 billion to Ukraine, and the White House has just asked Congress for another $37 billion. So I want to thank you, Dave, for being part of this special show that I host every, to end out the year, we have the year in review, and I really appreciate all your, your wonderful insight and years of, of knowledge on national and international um, viewpoints that you've given today. Um, I also want to thank, for, thank you for your work. Uh, with the Hispanic Journalists Association, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, the work that you're doing abroad too. It's just some welcome news that y'all are expanding your reach across borders to protect the freedom of the press. I appreciate the time and the opportunity, Jesse. As always, you know, you play a role 
in keeping the voice out there and speaking for the voiceless and speaking up and showcasing also a lot of the Latino members of our community, whether there be uh, LGBT members or allies and the work that we're doing in support of the Latino community, because it is important, whether it's the Rio Grande Valley or California or Chicago or New York, that Latinos, we continue to work together um, and even intra-party to, you know, have a seat at the table, but be a voice for our community more and more as those voices are disappearing, whether it's, you know, radio stations disappearing or newspapers disappearing. Um, you play a role with this podcast in informing the public, sharing information, but also engaging with diverse voices. So I thank you also and um, hoping for the best for 2023. Thank you, David.